This podcast discusses violence, drug use, and other adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. All right, it is time for episode three of Breaking Pod. Josh, how are you doing? You ready to talk about episode three of the greatest television show ever made? Zach, I have to say I'm doing wonderfully this week because since last we spoke, my beloved Virginia Cavaliers are national champions in the NCAA men's basketball tournament. This is uh, quite a turnaround from one year ago, and uh, so I'm I'm very excited. I got to watch the final game with my dad, who helped me become a University of Virginia basketball fan, and unlike Walt and Walt Jr., I have a great relationship with my father, so <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I'm super happy for you. I know that you were crushed last year. And for our non-sports fan listeners, what happened last year was the UVA Cavaliers went up against the University of Maryland, Baltimore County basketball team that was making its first ever appearance, I believe, in the March tournament. And the Cavs were a number one seed. UMBC was a 16 seed. And for the first time ever, a one seed went down to a 16 seed. So this was sweet, it sweet was redemption for the entire Cavs team, staff, fan base, all of that. I was so happy for you, Josh. Now I know how you feel because your beloved Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl a couple years ago. Yes, yes. It's great, and to, it's great I, to celebrate a championship. And Pete and I talked about this on the lineup, but you can you can gloat for a little bit after you win a championship. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I figured I, only I had gave a little him, time. I only gave him six months to gloat about the Caps championship, but you have right. more time for your okay, Caps good. winning especially since they won in the way they did after going down to a number 16 seed. Right. I think yeah, you have, exactly. I think you have a solid four years. You can ride this one. Wow. Okay. I'll take it. I got my championship yeah. gear on the way, but, but that <laughs> Perfect. aside, I'm doing well and I'm ready to talk about episode three of breaking bad, which I have to say before we get into the discussion, it, I think it's my favorite episode of the first season so far. Really? Okay. Episode three, uh, to me is a little bit slow. Okay. I do. I do like it. I think it's. I think it has some important scenes. Uh, there's. There's one crucial scene that I think is maybe a little bit too on the nose. We'll talk about it. But to me, it just feels a little bit slow. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, before we get into the episode, I just want to tell our listeners. I did a little internet research, and I could not find any alternate casting for Jesse Pinkman. So it seems like Aaron Paul was the choice to play Jesse from the beginning. Uh, that might not be. 100% true, but based on what I could find on the internet, that appears to be the case. Well, I think it has to go down as one of the greatest casting choices in television because I really, as, as we discussed last week, I can't imagine anyone else other than Aaron Paul playing this part. He's just so perfect for it. He adds the the levity when you need the levity. He adds the seriousness when you add the seriousness. He plays the perfect blend of angsty teenager and wannabe meth kingpin and lost boy that you need in this character. Right. And if you're watching along for the first time to Breaking Bad and you're not entirely convinced about Jesse Pinkman, just wait, because he has some amazing moments later down in the series that we won't spoil now, but when we get to them, they'll be really fun to talk about. Yes, definitely. Um, well, Josh, let's just get right into it and start talking about episode three where we see a little bit more of Jesse's personality, but we also see a lot more development of Walt. And before we before we begin recapping the plot, I do want to just mention that this episode is called And the Bags in the River. And this is related to the f- second episode, which is called The Cats in the Bag. So we're used to this phrase, the cat's out of the bag, referring to you know a secret that is now made public or something. But I wasn't too familiar with this phrase, cats in the bag, and I certainly wasn't familiar with the phrase, the cats in the bag and the bags in the river. So I did a little bit bit of internet sleuthing on this, Josh. And I have not seen the 1957 film Sweet Smell of Success. Have you? I have not seen it. Okay. Well, apparently it's a it's a classic. It, it features uh, Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis. And I, I've seen some internet reports that this is Vince Gilligan's all-time favorite film. Vince Gilligan, of course, being the creator of Breaking Bad. Not sure if that's actually true. That could be an urban legend. But what is true is that the phrase, the cat's in the bag and the bag's in the river, comes from this movie. And this movie is uh, has, a, has a rather convoluted plot, but basically 
the the phrase the cats in the bag and the bags in the river comes from this scene of dialogue between Burt Lancaster's character and Tony Curtis's character that's JJ Hunsecker and Sidney Falco and Sidney Falco is a press agent whom Lancaster's character has enlisted to basically make sure that Lancaster's sister breaks up with her boyfriend a fiance etc and so basically Sidney Falco's task with this kind of dirty deed of breaking up uh, Lancaster's sister from her lover and he promises he's going to get it done even though it makes his hands dirty and this is the conversation I found it and wanted to play it for you here so this is the inspiration for the title of this episode of Breaking Bad and the preceding episode here we go what you promised do it don't finagle around it's later than you think excuse me JJ it's later than you think that boy proposed to her love the music Susie told you that? Uh-huh. What was her answer? She'll discuss it with you at breakfast. That means you've got a plan. Can you deliver? Tonight. Before you go to bed. Cat's in a bag and a bag's in a river. Don't be a two-time loser, Sidney. The penalty could be severe. So what do you think about that, Josh? The cat's in the bag and the bag's in the river. Did you like the dramatic uh, the dramatic piano music? The music's great. And I also have to say, every time I, I, I see or hear a movie from, you know, like before the 1960s, you hear that delivery of dialogue that just would not hold up today. I mean, I just like it's it's so over dramatic, over dramatized. Yeah, it's just not my thing. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's an interesting little reference here. I don't know if I know exactly what it means. In I, I might have to see the entire movie to to really understand. But I always like little clever Easter eggs like this for people who know or for people who are interested in finding out. Especially if he is referencing something that is really important to him. Yeah, I totally agree. Super dramatic. I also, since I haven't seen the movie, I don't know if I can say I fully understand the reference. I think basically Sidney Falco or Tony Curtis's character is saying that basically the, the plan's been set in motion. It's too late to stop. So the cat's in the bag and the bag's in the river. I, I don't know. I That sort of could apply to this episode of Breaking Bad, but more likely, Josh, it's just Vince Gilligan uh, making a reference, a fun Easter egg, like you said, to a, to a movie that he likes. So <laughs> I don't know. He's but, getting cute with us. Yeah, exactly. Sneaky events. All right. Well, so the episode opens uh, almost right where episode two left off. So our listeners will recall or fans of the show will recall that Walt and Jesse uh, watch as uh, Emilio's remains fall through the ceiling in the bathtub that's been eaten up by the acid, the hydrofluoric acid that Jesse threw into the bathtub to try to dissolve Emilio's body. So they're wearing gas masks, as we've seen them do before, but instead of cooking meth this time, they're just cleaning up the acid-eaten remains of uh, the ill-fated Emilio. It's pretty grotesquely graphic. They're like picking up you know, innards and human remains, and there's, there's blood and guts everywhere, literally. Um, and they're dumping, in, dumping them into a waste bucket. And as we're watching them do this scene, we hear some audio from another scene, and then we, we cut to the visuals of another scene. This is a flashback in which a much younger Walt is talking to a woman who whose identity we don't yet know. Um, I'm going to play that right here. And this, this Josh, is where I think my, my complaint, my first complaint comes in. This, to me, just feels a little bit on the nose, um, but, but I'm, I'm welcome to be, uh, to be uh, questioned on this. But here's the scene. Phosphorus, point one point nine. Point one nine. There we go. So, the whole thing adds up to 99.8880042%. We are 0.111958% shy. Supposedly that's everything. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Seems like something's missing, doesn't it? There's got to be more to a human being than that. So that's it, Josh. Basically, this is a conversation between Walt and, as I mentioned, this as-of-yet unidentified woman. And what he's doing is breaking down the molar composition 
of a human body. So he's he's outlining or she's reading dictating to him all of the various molar components of the human body. And the thing is they don't add up to exactly 100. Now, this is either because of rounding error or really probably more more likely they're missing some uh, some small trace elements that are in the human body by chemical composition, but they can't figure out what the remaining part is. And this is when Walt acts mystified and says, there's got to be more to a human being than that. And this, this is why I think it's maybe a little bit too on the nose. I mean, I appreciate the juxtaposition of Walt and Jesse cleaning up the human remains while we have this flashback with Walt trying to figure out everything that is a human person. Um, and we see his, his, uh, desire to find something that is more than just maybe the material elements of a human person. But to me, it sounds, it just seems a little bit too direct. Do you agree or do you have a different perspective on this? I think it, it's good because it serves as a juxtaposition between what he's doing in the present and then what he remembers from the past. Yeah. Now I, I think that what you might be feeling is that, you know what comes later in the episode. Right. And so you might be referencing that in terms of it being too on the nose when he's talking about, you know, what makes up a human being. Because I think this whole episode for Walt is what it is to be a human. And I think that having this flashback sort of helps illuminate that that is going to be the theme of the episode. The other thing I think about the flashback too is that it's an interesting look at his past life when he actually seems happy and engaged right. in a way that we haven't seen him up to this point. And that's also a nice juxtaposition with his current state in the scene where he's on his hands and knees cleaning up human remains, like almost like, uh, you know, someone who's subservient. And and in the, in the flashback scene that we see with him in this yet unidentified woman, he's very much in control or he feels in control going back to that theme of Walt feeling like he needs to be in control of a situation. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about the, the sort of visual juxtaposition. What I was, what I was thinking about was the juxtaposition of the audio and the flashback where he's talking about what makes a human and him cleaning up the remains. But the visual contrast I think is important as well. So that is a good point. I, I had overlooked that. I do think that, um, in a way, the end, the, the, we're going to see more of this flashback at the end of the episode. In a way, I think that actually makes it a little bit better for me because of what it, what it says about Walt even in, in his younger days here. Yeah, I was going to say I the think, same thing. Yeah, I think for our purposes, at least at this point in the episode, what we're seeing is a much younger Walt, and we've described him before as kind of a very boring boring guy who does the same routine day in and day out, right? The chemistry teacher. But here we see this like dynamic, engaged, almost flirtatious guy. He's kind of flirting with this woman, right? And it doesn't seem at all like the Walt we see now. So something has happened in the interim between this young Walt who's eager to find out what there is more to a human being than what he can discover chemically and this Walt that we have later on who's cleaning up human remains off of a, a floor after they fell through a bathtub. Yeah, no, I totally see that. And I agree. I think that seeing the rest of the scene helps make this feel more rounded. Right, right. Well, um, let's go on from here. So after we see that scene juxtaposition, we then cut to Skylar and Marie. Um, Skylar is painting the baby room. Walt is, of course, absent as she's doing this. And Recall in the previous episode when Walt, quote, admitted to Skyler that he was uh, smoking pot because Jesse was his dealer, right? None of that's true, but as far as Skyler knows, that's that's Walt's problem. He's smoking pot, right? So she's trying to find out from Marie, who smoked a little bit in her college days. She's trying to find out sort of what what's up with pot and signs of smoking pot and just find out more about it, basically, because Skyler's not very, not very well read on cannabis. So Marie infers from this question that Skyler is implying that Walter Jr. has been using pot because Skyler frames the question as, hey, I'm writing a short story about this character who's using pot. I, I need to sort of round out the character. How should I do this? Marie just jumps right to Walter Jr. is using pot. So then she tells, she tells Hank. Well, then we go to Jesse's house. Walt and Jesse have finished cleaning up the human remains. And now they're each standing in a kiddie pool, like a, like a no kidding inflated kiddie pool filled with water. They're standing in their their smocks, their aprons, you know, rubber gloves, 
gas mask and hosing each other off uh, with the with the remains. And I think Josh, just from a visual perspective, that scene is interesting because we have Walt, who we've kind of established is the father figure, and Jesse, who's the son figure. They're both standing outside, right? Jesse and Walt are both standing in kiddie pools, but. What are they doing? They're washing human remains off of their suits. It's a it's a pretty jarring scene. Yeah, no, I totally saw that. The other thing that I was going to say is that whole plot device of saying, oh, I'm writing the story or, oh, I have a friend who has this problem. Right. I really feel like that's a little overdone at this point. Kind of that's that's kind of like one of my little nitpicks about this episode in particular is that it feels a little bit lazy in terms of like developing that idea. So I mean, otherwise it's fine, but it's just like, okay, we, does that ever work in real life? Oh, my friend has this problem. Oh, I'm writing this story. And everybody's like, oh, it's about you and your real life. Yeah, I, I see that. However, I will also say that Skylar seemed a little bit aloof throughout a lot of the show. Not, not the entire show, but I think a lot of it. And if there's, if there's a character who's going to try to use the, you know, the often used, always fail, I'm writing this story about a character. I think it would be Skylar. Yeah, no, it makes sense that it's her character. It just is like, I mean, I feel like we've established her character in other ways, and I'm not right. sure that this was in- totally necessary to continue establishing her as this partially aloof, you know, person. And I, I don't know, it just felt a little bit, a little bit forced to me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And the reason, I think the bigger reason why I think it's forced is that we I feel like we haven't really established that she's a writer. Like, I think maybe there was one other reference to it, but um, it felt like a little bit out of left field when she just started saying that she's writing this short story about a character who smokes pot. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so Walt and Jesse, they're washing each other off. Walt still obviously has the task of killing Crazy Eight. Crazy Eight, recall, is the drug dealer who was Emilio's partner. Emilio is dead. Crazy Eight is not dead, but he is locked up in the basement, uh, locked to a support pillar with a bike lock. So Walt goes down to the basement to throw his gloves away, and this is when Crazy Eight starts talking to him. And I want you to listen to this scene because I think what Crazy Eight says in the beginning is important in Walt's uh, sort of analysis or self-evaluation later on. He starts out with this line, you don't have it in you, Walter, and I'm about to play that for you right here. Um, basically crazy eight's going to tell Walter he doesn't have it in him. And then they're going to have this, this dialogue that basically outlines the stark choice that's in front of Walt right now. He either lets crazy eight go or he doesn't. And this is the choice that he has. (coughs) You don't have it in you, Walter. (coughs) How do you know my name? Jesse. Told the on me. I came by to sell you meth. So what? You threaten him, huh? You beat it out of him? Not even close. What else did he tell you? Pretty much everything you could think of. He was a high school teacher. One time he taught about carbon dioxide but making grape soda in class. You have a son who's retarded or in a wheelchair or something. It shouldn't come across as some news flash. That partner of yours, he's got a big mouth. Walter, I don't know what you think you're doing here, but trust me, this line of work doesn't suit you. So I suggest let you go then. Just unlock you and adios, huh? I don't see what real choice you have. If it's between that and cold-blooded murder. So I think that last part puts it really starkly. Crazy 8 rightly says, I don't see what choice you have. It's either that, let me go, or cold-blooded murder. And I like this conversation for a couple reasons. One is because it does set up this choice that we're going to spend the next you know, as we're watching the show, we're going to spend the next 35 minutes or 40 minutes of the show watching Walt deal with this choice. Um, and the second reason I like this is because we see Crazy 8 kind of poking at Walt's ego a little bit, I think. And for our listeners, recall how Josh and I, in episode one, 
set up this set up the central question of the show as being basically is Walt a victim of circumstance driven to do bad things by uh, a series of bad choices that he whose outcome he couldn't possibly foresee or was he a a man who was sort of morally corrupted from the get-go and just falls deeper and deeper into a pit of his own making um, and I think there's there's some support for both sides, as I mean, as I think we'll see in almost every episode, there's some support for both sides of that argument. But I think in this dialogue, it's interesting because we see Crazy kind of poking his poking his ego a little bit. I mean, from the from the very first thing he says, "You don't have it in you, Walter." Uh, he's calling Walter out by name, and he's saying basically, "You don't have the courage to finish what you started." And then later in the conversation, again, you heard that line: "This line of work doesn't suit you, right? Like, get out of here, old man. This is not where you should be. You don't have it in you." So, Josh, what do you think? Is this is this provoking Walt's ego, perhaps? Um, and if so, I think the question is then how does Walt respond? And we'll see more of his responses, I think, in the subsequent conversations that we're about to play. I think it does provoke his ego. And I would say that Crazy 8 had two things that he could have tried here. He could have tried what he did, and he made a calculation that this was the best route to go. Or he could have gone a different route and been more you know, scared and said, please, you know, like, please let me go. You know, I have a family and, and, you know, he chose the route of kind of like standing, you know, like toe to toe, chest to chest and saying like, come on, do it. You know, like, I don't believe you have it. And it'll be interesting to see throughout the course of the episode, whether that, that line works for him, because I actually think that I'm not sure that he put enough thought into potentially going the other route and pretending that he didn't know anything about Walt or his life and, you know, just saying, you know, please begging for mercy. And it, maybe that's not in Crazy Eight's personality and he would never do that. But, uh, you know, I think he should have at least considered that. Yeah, maybe at least lead with that one, right? Like lead with a soft approach. Like, I don't know anything. I don't, I, you know, I'm a harmless guy. My right. name is Domingo. I'm from Albuquerque, born and bred. And I don't know who you are, but let me go. <laughs> Instead, right, exactly. yeah, he does kind of go for the jugular right away. I know who you are. I know who your son is. I know where your family lives. I know where you work. Um, it is a, it is a little bit aggressive. And I think also says a lot about Crazy Eight's ego. So that is, a, that is a really good point. I hadn't really seen this scene as Walt and Crazy Eight kind of going toe to toe. But in a sense, that's exactly what it is. There's a sort of verbal repartee that goes on. And it's not just this scene. There are there are two more very similar to this. So this this happens. Walt goes upstairs. He confronts Jesse about blabbing too much to Crazy 8. And, and he's pretty aggressive, right? You told him about, you know, my family, etc. Um, Jesse tries to leave. Uh, he was he was trying to cool down by using meth. But, but Walt uh, dumps the meth. Uh, tries to dump it in the toilet, I think, and then Jesse throws it out the window. They both run outside. Um, Jesse tries to get in his car to drive away, and then Walt drags him out of the car. And this is where I think we get a good example, Josh, of Gilligan's knack for dark humor. And we see a lot of humor, dark humor in this show, especially when Jesse's involved, and I think this is a really good example of it. Um, I like this scene for a couple of reasons. One, because I think this is basically like a, a teenager and his dad fighting like in the driveway as the teenager is trying to leave in a huff in his car. Um, and two, because of some of Jesse's dialogue here, including the the uh, great line, coin flip is sacred. <laughs> so here's here's this scene. No. Jesus. We've got work to do. No, no, you. You got work to do. I did my part. You mean that obscenity that I spent the last two hours cleaning up? That is your contribution. Yo, kiss my peak ass, man. I didn't ask for any of this. All right, how am I supposed to live here now, huh? My whole house smells like toe cheese and dry cleaning. Because you didn't follow my instructions. Oh, well, Heil Hitler, bitch. And let me tell you something else. We flipped a coin, okay? You and me. You and me, coin flip is sacred. And Jesse drives away, leaving Walt to uh, finish what he started. So, uh, Josh, I love the, my whole house smells like toe cheese and dry cleaning. And then the, <laughs> uh, the line, <laughs> coin flip is sacred. It's just, it's so, it's so vintage Jesse. I love it. 
Yeah, and I think it really is a good representation of the father-son dynamic that we're starting to see between Walt and Jesse. And it's just, for anybody who has kids, regardless of the age, you know that at a certain point, pushing back just makes it worse. And right. so I think that's what you're getting from from this scene. You know, Walt, I think rightfully says, look, I actually had to spend a lot of time cleaning up the mess that you made. And so maybe you should help me with this crazy eight situation, especially because you've blabbed information to him about my personal life. So he's right. I don't think Walt's entirely in the wrong and being like, look, I need help with this. And you owe me at this point. But, mm-hmm. you know, the further he pushes Jesse, the further away Jesse wants to get. And that's visually seen when Jesse peels out of the driveway and, and leaves, leaving right. Walt starkly alone with the situation. And again, that's exactly like what what you can imagine a teenager doing. He gets in a fight with his dad and he peels out of the driveway in his, uh, you know, old beat up car with flames on the hood. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So the next scene, I I think it's not essential to the plot for this episode, but but it is important to mention. The next thing we see is Marie in a store uh, like a a women's uh, clothing or shoe store, and she has a verbal spat with an employee there and then basically just casually shoplifts t- takes the pair of shoes that she wanted and, and brazenly leaves her her um her white sneakers like on the display rack it's very obvious and it looks like she is totally comfortable doing it we get the impression that this is not the first time she's done this so just kind of tuck that away um now remember that marie inferred from skylar's question about pot that walter jr was experimenting with marijuana so she told hank and asked hank to scare him straight basically so Hank, at Marie's request, takes Walter Jr. to see firsthand the effects of illegal drugs, live and in person. He drives to a motel parking lot where uh, some meth heads are known to hang around. Um, he sees a presumably a meth addict there and prostitute using the vending, vending machine. He calls her over. Her name is Wendy. He has her show um, Walter Jr. her hollowed out gums and her teeth, which are a disaster. It kind of grosses him out. And then he asks her if she got started on pot. He's obviously trying to show like, hey, meth, uh, marijuana is the gateway drug. Stay away from it. Otherwise, you'll end up like this, right? All of this is supposed to scare Walter Jr. straight. Uh, Walter Jr. really is just confused because obviously he's not experimenting with marijuana. That's that's a myth that Marie wrongly inferred from Skyler. And so he's just he, he asks Hank, why are you showing me this? And then the interesting thing is here that when Wendy returns to her motel room, Jesse's already there. He was uh, he was paying for her services, we'll say. And he saw the whole interaction with Hank, uh, the DEA agent. He was afraid that he that he was looking for him. So uh, then the camera cuts away, and that's that's pretty much uh, all that all that the scene has there. Did, what did you make of this scene, Josh? Well, I think the whole interaction between Walt Jr. and Hank is a little bit silly in and of itself. I think that this is it is good character building for Hank because we haven't seen a whole lot of him yet up to this point, you know, outside of, I think, maybe the the birthday scene in the first episode. So it's interesting to see more of his brazenness and, and his comfort level in dealing with these types of situations. But I will say that one thing that I didn't really love about this scene, I don't really love that Jesse is a part of this scene. And that's mainly because... I think Jesse clearly has flaws and he's made mistakes, but this isn't something that I really ever expected from him. And it's not something that I think we get into much in the future of the series, either him soliciting the services of a, of a prostitute. And so I find it a little bit of a weird character moment for him because it's not really, you know, clearly he's into the drug use and, and drug making, but this, this is like a whole other world that we never really touch on again that I can remember and we might get into it later that if he does but it just is a weird character moment for him but you had an interesting interpretation of the scene with regards to Hank and Walt Jr. that I really liked oh well so first of all I I also agree with your assessment of the Jesse positioning of this it's it's I think Jesse is in part so lovable as a character because he is a uh, he's a young teenage meth head who is striving for greatness and never quite able to get there. And he's really kind of like a sympathetic and tragic and comic figure all in one. And it kind of messes with that vibe if he's also engaging prostitutes on the side, you know? Yeah. Um, so I totally agree with your your commitment, your uh, your critique there. And I think it is, it's maybe one that 
the writers of the show kind of realize after the fact, because you're right, we don't see him in these situations really again. He's not, this is not sort of written into his character from this point forward. So that is interesting. Um, as far as the dynamic between Hank and Walter Jr. and then the absent father, Walt. Yeah, I think that this this scene, especially Hank's interaction with Wendy, it does add some sort of levity and again, the sort of dark, dark humor that Vince Gilligan is pretty good at employing. But I also think this scene more broadly just shows sort of the perversity of this entire dynamic that's set up here because Walt, first of all, lied about how he is, uh, he's buying pot from Jesse, right? That's not true. But because he lied about that, Skyler asked Marie about that. And that led Marie to wrongly infer that Walter Jr. was experimenting with pot, which led her to prompt Hank to scare Walter Jr. straight, which he had to do because of Walt. The, because Walt is the absent father who Marie knows can't be trusted to scare his son straight. So then Hank, the DEA agent, has to take uh, has to take Walter Jr. to a place where drug use is happening to show him the effects live and in person, all while his father is not there. But ironically, his father has, is actually you know in, in a mess of his own making, a moral mess of his own making, precisely because he's been manufacturing and supplying, if indirectly, the very meth users who Hank is trying to scare Walter Jr. by showing. So it's it's all a very like convoluted, uh, dark, twisted web um, that also has its its moments of levity. But I think the point here is that it highlights the perversity and the you know oh what a tangled web we leave web we weave. That's a tongue twister. It shows the perversity of the entire uh, framework of sort of family relationships already, and we're three episodes into the show. One of the things that just came into my mind as you were saying all of that is that this is a good example of an effect that Walter has on people that he might not be able to see when he's manufacturing meth that he wants to stay away from. But little does he know it's actually affecting his own family in in small ways at this point. But Walt Jr. is being brought into like learning about this from his uncle. Right. right. And despite the fact that Walt thinks, look, if I just make the drug and we sell it and I get the money, then everybody else I'm around doesn't have to deal with it at all. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and then we cut back to Walt right after that scene. And what is he doing? He's totally absent from the from the picture. He's actually sitting on the toilet making a list of pros and cons of killing Crazy 8. And I wish we could play the clip, but it wouldn't be helpful because r- really what's important here is the visual. So we can just sort of tell you tell you what it is. But he has a, a little notepad and on the left hand is let him live and on the right hand is kill him. And he's trying to he's list, listing the reasons for taking either course of action. And on the let him live column, he writes down eight different things. Uh, moral thing to do, post-traumatic stress, won't be able to live with yourself, Murder is wrong, and I think it's important to point out that he he writes wrong in all caps and puts an exclamation point on the end as if he needs to really remind himself. Um, Five, he may listen to reason, uh, Judeo-Christian principles, sanctity of life, and you are not a murderer. And again, I think it's important here, not is underlined and in all caps. So um, that's the side for let him live. Those are the reasons why Walt should let him live. On the reasons for kill him, the only reason on that side is he'll kill you and your entire family if you let him go. So I think there there are a number of things that struck me about this, Josh. The first thing I'll say, though, is that this really struck me as um, Walt having an, an interior argument with himself. This is not a rational man who's just writing down the pros and cons so that he can plug them all into a decision matrix and then come out with the right answer. He is having a conversation, and it's a very emotionally charged conversation between his you know, the, 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 uh, the devil on his right shoulder and the angel on his left, um, about what he should do. And I think that's why we see, you know, murder is wrong, all caps, exclamation point. You are not a murderer. He's really struggling with this decision. Um, and he's obviously driven by the fear of crazy at killing him and his entire family if he lets him live. So I think that's interesting because we see, Walt, the chemistry professor, driven by science, and we've talked about him as someone who needs control and needs order, but here we see him really losing control as as this devolves into uh, not a moral argument, but really sort of an emotional argument or, or a shouting match um, as he tries to figure out what his next steps should be. Yeah, the first thing that stands out to me here is that he's writing on a notepad, 
And I think if this show were made today, he would be jotting down notes on his iPhone or his smartphone. Right. Yeah. And you would have like, you'd have like an emoji of an angel and like an emoji of a devil. And then underneath <laughs> would be all of these things. So that's the first thing I noticed that, you know, he, but he, then again, he is kind of old school. He's uh, 50 years old at this point. So maybe he prefers pen and paper. And then the other thing that I was thinking about it was, this is really the first time we've had any, any notion from him that he has any belief in any sort of higher power. Oh, that's a good like point. He mentioned, he mentions Judeo-Christian principles, sanctity of life. I mean, these are things that are very intrinsic to Christianity and Judaism, obviously here. And, you know, we never see this from him. We haven't seen this up to this point from him at all. And so it's interesting that when he's sitting down and really pondering this and, and taking time to himself, that he has an inkling that, these things are important to him in some sense. That's a really good point. And yet I will add that he has an inkling, but that's all it is, right? Like it never it never advances beyond specifics. So, you know, a general platitude like murder is wrong or just, just writing out Judeo-Christian principles. I mean, what does that mean, right? Right. Um, I think it might be something where he feels like he needs to write that down. Like he's coming up with every possible thing right. he can think of for letting him live and that's just one of the things he comes up with but i do think it's interesting that it makes the list i mean there are only eight things there there are probably a number of other things you might be able to add to the list which is like i don't want to go to jail for this you know like you know there are probably any number of things you could add but these are the things that make the list yeah and i would also it also occurs to me that he has these things on the list but it's not clear at all that he believes in god Right, because he he says murder is wrong. He says moral thing to do, Judeo Christian principles. But he's not talking about you know eternal consequences sure. or God's judgment. He's just talking. He, he's he's really speaking in like the the language of Judeo Christian ethics to talk right. about these things. But it all lacks specifics, and it does like you said. It seems like he's just sort of trying to come up with a laundry list of all the all the buzzwords, right? Like all the reasons why he should act in a certain moral way. When, right. when his instincts are telling him otherwise. And I think one of the things that's interesting about that is that there's nothing at the core of the let him live argument, which I think will be important as we explore the rest of this episode, that there's nothing really grounding him there. And there is something really at the core of the fact that he should kill him, which is a very tangible, my whole family and I will die at his hands. And that's very tangible and that's very that's something that he can clearly latch onto, whereas on the let him live side, there's nothing quite as tangible. It's not like he has, like what you were saying, like, I will have an eternal punishment because of this. Like, he doesn't have that thought at all. Right. Yeah. And I think you're right that it is pretty clear that he's grasping at straws here. And I want to play a clip that will that will illustrate this. But first, I do want to mention that once we see Walt struggling with his list here, he then calls Skylar at home and tells her he's stuck like working late at the car wash. And then he, it, it's so awkward. He does such a bad job lying about it. He says, you know, yeah, you know, you're right. I just, I just need to say no, you know, I need to go home earlier. And she's totally uh, unamused and basically says, you're working at the car wash. I'd highly doubt that because I know that you quit three days ago. And so at that point he knows that the, uh, the, the secret is out and she knows he's up to something. Is that the deleted scene we wish we'd gotten the call between Skylar and Bogdan where she's like calling to ask yes. where he is? And oh Bogdan's my goodness, that'd be like, perfect. He doesn't work here anymore. Yes. <laughs> we need that. We need that scene. Yes. Oh, I would love to see that deleted scene. It'd be perfect. Yeah. Sorry. Go, go ahead. Um, so no, no. So Walt makes crazy at a sandwich as he's descending into the cellar. He's walking down the stairs to deliver the sandwich on the, on the glass plate. He has a coughing fit, passes out, and he wakes up on the floor, you know, a few minutes, hours later, we don't know, surrounded by shards of the broken plate and the disheveled sandwich, all of this. And Crazy 8 starts talking to him, says he's surprised that he woke up, thought he was a goner, etc. We find out that it's been, I think, 10, 15 minutes. And at this point, uh, Walt tells Crazy 8 that he has lung cancer, that, and that explains the coughing fit and all of that. And then they have this, this interesting conversation where... Um, Walt tries to get to know Crazy a little bit, and Crazy Eight says, this is not going to make it easier when you kill me. But the the important thing here, I think, related to Josh, your point just now, is that Walt really is looking for a reason not to kill Crazy Eight. 
And that explains why he has eight sort of generalized, non-specific platitude reason, platitude type reasons on his list, but he still isn't decided. And so in this conversation, he asks Crazy Eight, basically sell me, you know, tell me what the reason is that I shouldn't kill you. So, uh, so listen to this scene as Crazy Eight tries to give him a reason. So, Domingo, you from around town here or someplace else? Hey, Walter, you getting to know me is not going to make it easier for you to kill me. Keep that in mind, you understand? You know, you keep telling me that I don't have it in me. Well, maybe, but maybe not. I, I sure as hell am looking for any reason not to. I mean, any good reason at all. Sell me. Tell me what it is. So that's it. He's, he's begging Crazy Eight to give him a reason, any reason at all, in his words. So obviously he's not, he's not persuaded by the eight reasons that he already wrote down on a piece of paper. He needs something more. Yeah, maybe it's the, uh, he's not persuaded by the Crazy Eight reasons. Huh, I wonder if there's oh. any symbolism there. Oh, man. There could be. There could be. I like it. You know, I have to say about him passing out just for a second, is that a thing? Like when people have lung I don't know. cancer, do they cough and pass out? Like I, it's yeah. never really explained. Yeah, I was wondering that. I was wondering that. I, I mean, I, it, I really have no idea how realistic that is. Yeah, it makes for a good visual and it's important later in the episode. But to me, it's like this is the second time it's happened. And, right. you know, it just seems like it's a little much. I mean, maybe it happens. We need a doctor on the show to tell us for real. But I, I've never heard of that. But maybe he's like coughing so much he can't breathe and so he, he doesn't have enough air. Maybe that's it. I don't really know. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I've definitely heard of, you know, coughing so much that, you know, you vomit or something like that. But yeah. I don't know about I don't know about passing out. It's a good question. We'll have to uh, pull on a, a pulmonary oncologist to the show. Exactly. So I think with regards I think with regards to, you know, Walt here asking Crazy Eight to like, please give me something. I, I really do think that he doesn't want to kill him. Like, I I feel like he he doesn't want to do it. And I think that this is sort of evidence to the fact that ultimately he's a he's a good person at heart, but that he's he's driven in these circumstances to do things that he doesn't want to do. Because you you might recall, he's already killed someone. You know, he right. killed Emilio, but that he I think he was able to justify his self-defense like if he yeah. didn't do it then he would die and Jesse would die in that moment and here he has crazy eight locked up and there's there's really nothing crazy eight could do to defend himself or to attack Walt and I feel like Walt understands that this is different than the Emilio situation yes and I think the the choice is exactly what crazy eight said earlier you either let me go or cold-blooded murder and I think Walt understands that as well I also don't think he wants to do this at all but I think he's struggling to he's struggling to find any reason not to you know um well again I think him, that, I, I think that the core of the kill him argument is very strong it's like I right. don't want to die and I especially don't want my family to die because the only right. reason I've done any of this up to this point that we've at least seen on the surface is that he wants to provide for them so to right. have his son and pregnant wife and you know brother-in-law and sister-in-law die because he let someone go like that's a very tangible thing that he can see and the other side of letting him live it's like there's nothing at the core there there's nothing that he can tangibly see as a result of that like maybe crazy eight will reform his life right. and he'll never hear from him again but the likelihood of that is not great well, we hear them have another long discussion here. This clip is, uh, I think, about a minute, 30 seconds long or so. So it's a little bit long, and there's a lot of silence in the clip as they discuss this. And I think that that is accompanied by visuals where Brian Cranston is doing a very good job, looking very conflicted, and he, he tears up at one point. It's clear that he knows this is a tough choice and doesn't want to have to make it. But in this in this scene, basically, what we're going to hear is Walt and Crazy Eight have a dialogue about what Walt should do. And then Walt express his indecision, 
And then Walt decide that he's going to let Crazy Ed go. So here is how, here's how this conversation plays out. Just, you know, you got cancer. No one but you. <laughs> Are you feminine? No. Why not? Not a conversation I'm even remotely ready to have. That's why you're cooking meth. Want to leave money for your family? Hell, I mean, I'll write you a check right now if you let me go. <laughs> so I think it's interesting that right there, Crazy Eight gives Walt a possible out. Like I said, Walter, if this line of work doesn't suit you. Get out before it's too late. I don't know what to do. And here, Brian Cranston's character is obviously very visibly upset. Yeah. You do. And then this is about 20 seconds of silence as we just watch Walt wrestle with this. Crazy A says he doesn't know what to do. And then we, we hear the final decision from Walt coming up here. get the key I'll get the key so it's a little bit hard to get all of that when you're just listening to it as I mentioned it's accompanied by very powerful visuals and a master class in acting by Brian Cranston but I think to to Josh your point what you were saying earlier about how conflicted he really is on this I think this is what we see we see this is the moment of decision for Brian Cranston he, or for, not for Brian Cranston, for Walt. He doesn't <laughs> want to be in this situation. He starts crying to Crazy Eight. He really, I mean, he kind of, he bears his soul to Crazy Eight. Crazy, he tells Crazy Eight, he's the only person who knows he has cancer, right? He tells, he tells the guy who he has locked up in the basement. And I think it's interesting too that immediately there's a sort of kinship between the two of them. So Josh, your point earlier about them going toe-to-toe here, um, in a way they are going toe-to-toe, but in this, in this scene, they're sort of standing side by side as Crazy Eight immediately understands, oh, you're doing this, you're cooking meth for your family. Like, I get it, you know? And if that's the case, then I'll cut you a check right now. So as I mentioned, he gives gives Walt an out right there. Walt obviously doesn't take it. Um, Walt tears up. I don't know what to do. And then Crazy Eight says, yeah, you do. And then it, we have that, that long period of indecision. And then Walt says... I'll get the key to, to unlock the bike lock and let uh, crazy eight whose real name we find out is Domingo go. Yeah. I think that one thing we should point out to our listeners is that just preceding this conversation, Walt and Domingo crazy eight have a conversation where Walt learns a lot about crazy eight's life and his family and that he grew up in Albuquerque and that his dad owns a furniture store and that Walt possibly, met him years and years ago when they purchased the crib for Walt Jr. Right. So, I mean, they they have like a, a depth of conversation here. I think in terms of them going toe-to-toe, I think that it's even more elevated here because you can see sort of a shifting of an attack from Crazy 8 because he, he realizes that his harsh, like, I know who you are, I'll find you, like, you, you don't have this in you, has turned to this, like, soft, like, you don't have it in you, man. Like, don't don't pretend like you're someone you're not. Like, you you know what you need to do here. So I think that it's just another example of how Crazy Eight is responding to what Walt has done here, which is have a conversation over a couple beers, and he's trying to a new tactic here. Might be a little too late, but he's trying something new. Yeah, and and you literally mean a couple of beers. I, I forgot to mention that, but Walt brings beer down to him and they they literally share some brewskis. Uh and they talk about talk about this this dilemma. Yeah, I the other thing that I find really interesting about this is the fact that Walt says that he's not remotely ready to have a conversation with his family about the fact that he has yeah. cancer. And I was thinking yeah. more about this as since we recorded the first two episodes of this and we talked about how 
why doesn't he want to tell Skylar and, you know, especially his wife. And it reminded me of the very first episode when they're, when they're having the birthday breakfast with the vegan bacon, the disgusting vegan mm-hmm. bacon. Gross. And Skylar says, like Band-Aids. Right, Skylar says something that I think I just glossed over the first time that I heard it, but she says, did you take your ac- echinacea or echinacea? And I was like, what is that? And I kept thinking more about it. And I was taking a shower the other day and my wife, Maureen, for those of you who are not listeners of the podcast, is into this like natural uh, soaps and, and shampoos and and her shampoo has echinacea in it. So I was like, oh, so maybe oh, echinacea wow. is like a natural thing. So I looked it up. It turns out it's like a flower that is supposed to be like this all natural, very herbal thing to treat colds and coughs. And so I was thinking maybe Walt doesn't want to tell Skylar because his thought is that she's just going to suggest that he tries all of these like Eastern medicines and and things that he as a scientist knows are not going to work. So I think maybe he's responding to like, I don't really want to tell Skylar that I have cancer because she's going to respond with take your echinacea or something ridiculous like that, that he knows as a scientist is not going to work. I realize that's a little bit of a tangent from what we're talking about with Crazy 8, but I forgot to mention it earlier. And it sort of ties into this fact here that the only person he's told about his diagnosis is Crazy 8. Yeah, I also sort of homed in on that when he said it's a conversation I'm not even remotely ready to have. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's because he knows at least in part, he knows that Skyler is such a problem solver. Like if he tells her this problem, she's going to want to solve it. And I think we're we're going to see that happen in the next episode called Cancer Man. So um, maybe in that sense, Walt is right. But it's it's still just so weird to me that the only the only person with whom he can have this conversation is the guy that he has locked in a basement, right? Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe that sort of speaks also to a little bit of the darkness of Walt's character that. You know, that that's the one thing he can control, right? Like in this in this scenario in which he has not told his family about this cancer that has taken over his life and potentially will take his life, in that scenario where he can't talk to anybody about that, the one person he can talk to is the person that he has locked up, immobilized in his basement. I mean it's it's a sort of a dark, dark analysis, but maybe there's something there. Yeah, absolutely. So he says he'll get the key. He goes upstairs, he tosses his beer can in the trash, and he sees the broken plate in there. Recall that that plate broke on the previous trip into the basement when he had the coughing fit, dropped the plate on the floor, and it shattered. And he looks at the plate, walks away from the trash can, and then he pauses and goes back to the trash can and realizes something, and we don't know what it is at this point. Then he takes out all the pieces of the plate, puts them all together, and realizes that there is a, a basically a a nice sharp shard of the plate missing, you know, perfect for an improvised shank. And he, he, uh, you know, we, we hear him and see him start saying, no, 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 please. No. Um, he basically realizes that crazy eight has taken a piece of the plate to use as a weapon. And he doesn't want that to be the case because he was going to let crazy eight go. I think that's, that's an important thing to not realize here. Walt did get the key. He reached up on top of the cupboard to where the key was. He had the key in hand and then he realized the plate thing. And he realizes at that point that Crazy 8 is going to try to kill him. So he goes down into the basement and um, he confronts Crazy 8 while Crazy 8 has his back to him, you know, uh, making, giving Walt easy access to the lock. And then uh, he basically says, you know, are you going to kill me with that as soon as I unlock you? And Crazy 8 tries to stab him at that point and Walt pulls as hard as he can for as long as he can on the bike lock until crazy eight is choked to death. It's a pretty graphic scene. Uh, I'm not playing it for a reason on this uh, episode, but crazy eight goes down that way. So Walt is going to let him go. And then when he realizes that crazy eight has not been acting in good, in good faith, he chokes out crazy eight and kills him. Jesse comes back. The basement at this point is empty and clean. Walt is gone. Crazy Eight is gone. All signs of a conflict or a struggle are gone. And Jesse doesn't know what happened. And then we cut to DEA agents, including Hank, who are out in the New Mexico desert. They have found the original RV cook site, including the very pure meth that was in Crazy Eight's car from when Crazy Eight and Emilio made Jesse at gunpoint take them to the cook site. And then they find a gas mask. And so we are setting up for 
a DEA cat and mouse game as they've figured out that there's a new cook in town who can cook very pure crystal meth. Can I say something about uh, the the killing scene real quick? Yeah. Okay, so the one thing that I wanted to ask you about this is during the scene where he's choking Crazy 8, he gets stabbed in the leg a couple of times with a shank. Yep. And I wanted to ask you if you thought, did he let himself get stabbed on purpose because he wanted to make him feel like it was more like self-defense? Like, if I'm getting stabbed, because he he puts his leg up on the on the pole to sort of get more leverage, but I'm not sure he really needed that. Do you think that he let himself get stabbed or once he did get stabbed the first time he let it continue happening because he wanted to feel something there that made him think to himself like, okay, this is self-defense. Like I can justify this now. Yeah. That had not, that had not occurred to me. I had just assumed it was, he had put it up there for leverage and then that was the limb that crazy it had access to. But I do. And, and I think there's no reason to think that's not the case. But I'm intrigued by your idea that he intentionally left his leg there after the fact because it does, it, uh, it, yeah, it makes him feel something in a way. It's almost like a penance. It's almost like he's, yes. he's sort of like saying, it's like self-flagellation. Right, yeah. So like, hey, look, I'm doing this thing, which I guess he can also justify as self-defense because he knew that were he to let him go, then he was going to get killed with this shard of plate. But, right. you know, maybe the leg stabbing is more of like a, look, I've done this thing, so this is my punishment for this, and now I can feel a little bit better about what I've done here. I like that interpretation a lot. And I also think that the stabbing is a sign, or we can interpret it as a sign that there's no way Walt can do this without getting his, his hands dirty or without suffering some some side effect. You know, he we've talked about, obviously, how he loves control and... Um, doesn't like to lose control, but here we see him doing this. And even though he has every single advantage that he would ever need to kill this man, he gets a really nasty gash in his leg. Right, exactly. Okay, so go back to, we. Hank has found the RV cook site and the gas mask, yeah. and then we'll pick up there. Yeah, so, and, and then we cut to the the final scene in the episode and this is where we we are uh, coming back full circle on the initial flashback scene where it is walt sitting with the the woman talking about uh you know there's got to be more to a human being than that as walt says so this is the conclusion of the scene and this actually makes me like the scene more this this second part of it because i think um even though this is a little bit on the nose i think it's more meaningful and i'll explain why in just a second but here is the rest of that scene Something's missing. What about the soul? <laughs> the soul. There's nothing but chemistry here. So that is obviously the crucial line. There's nothing but chemistry here. And I know you can't see it, but right before he says that, he has moved in to this woman to presumably give her a kiss. And so the there's nothing but chemistry here is clearly some witty repartee where he's basically saying, you know, there's chemistry between us. Let's make something happen, right? But if you peel the onion back and go one layer deeper, what are we seeing? We're seeing Walt puzzle the, the the brilliant analytical control freak wall puzzle over what else there is to a human being someone suggests to him the soul and then i don't know if you heard it but he sort of laughs it off in a, in a sort of scoffing sort of way like soul and then his response you know forget about the fact that he's flirting with her his, his response verbally is there's nothing but chemistry here so to me the conclusion of this episode is if, if there is a turning point in, in Walt's sort of moral character, like we've talked about, Josh, to me, it's right here. This is the pivot point where Walt has killed Crazy Eight. There's no coming back from that decision. He has to live with it now. 
And now we're seeing a, a more complete picture of who Walt is and basically a repudiation of any idea of a soul in the, in the human being. And the reason why I think this strengthens the position that Walt was a, a bad man whose bad decisions just make him worse is that we see this repudiation of the idea of a soul, not in the post-Crazy 8 Walt, but in the Walt of you know, 20, 25 years ago a long, long time ago. And so I think that's why this this flashback scene is ultimately ultimately really interesting to me, even if it starts out sort of feeling very heavy-handed in the beginning of the episode. Yeah, I think it's definitely an indication that he doesn't believe in any sort of higher power. He doesn't believe that there's anything like a soul in a human person. I don't know if I'm necessarily entirely on board the idea that just because he doesn't believe there's a soul means he believes human life is is able to be thrown away. I still think that he sure. struggles with he I think regardless of the fact that he had to kill Crazy Eight, I think still think he struggled intensely with that decision. And ultimately I think that he was able to justify it by the fact that look, I was gonna die, my family was gonna die, and so this was justifiable for me to do. And I think that there's a lot of evidence that points to that, that he really believed that Crazy Eight was a true human person. I mean, like he would, right. he did things for him, like cut off the crust of the bread that he made for his sandwiches because he knew Crazy Eight didn't like that. I mean, like someone who doesn't believe that there's any value in this, in a particular human, not just all humans, you know, wouldn't do that. They would just, they wouldn't even necessarily bring him food. So I think that, Yes, I do see that there there is a clear indication that Walt's God is science, but I don't necessarily know if this moment in particular is sort of like the inflection point in his life. I think that in my interpretation, we're going to get more clear, a more clear and more definitive inflection point in the coming seasons. But I can yeah. totally see what you're saying. Like, I mean, it, it is clearly a big moment for him. It just feels more justifiable than some things that we might see down the road. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, too, that if, if we're going to accept that there are inflection points at all, I think we have to also accept that there are inflection points in the other direction. You know, and so that implies necessarily that, you know, at any point along the along the descent into darkness there's always the chance for redemption and turning to the light and and maybe you know part of part of what this is is um Walt's zigzag journey right into darkness and sometimes he makes a turn towards redemption and sometimes he makes a turn towards darkness but that's that's kind of the arc it's not a straight line you know it's not a it's not a a straight unbroken path that we see him follow through the entire series we see a a series of 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 turns and turns again Right, and ultimately that's what makes this series so intriguing. Yeah. Anything else on episode three? No, I think all we have left to do is our MVP for the episode. Zach, I've taken it the first two weeks, so why don't you kick it off this week? Who is your MVP for episode three? So I, I think that uh, you know maybe this is just because I feel bad for him here, but I'm going to give the MVP award to Crazy 8. Ah, uh, I was going to say the same I think thing. That Oh, okay, perfect. Well, we didn't compare notes, and look at that. Um, yeah, I think Crazy Eight is good in this because he is a perfect foil for Walt, and and the way that he is able to get Walt to open up to him, and by extension to us, the viewers, is really impressive. The way that they wrote his character, and the way that the I don't even know the actor's name. I should know the actor's yeah, name. Yeah, I looked it up. It's um, Max Arkenig. Arkinig, oh, I mean, I'm butchering his name, Max Arkinigaya. So I, I totally butchered that. I'm sorry. To I, I would butcher that as well. well. Well, we'll just call him Max. I think Max is a really good job as an actor in this scene. I think the writers did a very good job writing his lines for him. But the way he's able to open up the mind of Walter White Forrest makes him, in my opinion, the MVP of the episode. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is that Zach, you already mentioned that throughout the episode. This is sort of like a master class in acting from from Brian yeah. Cranston. And to have someone opposite him for much of the entire episode able to ascend to that level of of acting, I toe think to is, toe, is, like you said, right? Yeah, is really impressive. So that's why I would give it to him. And 
also since you know this is his last episode so it's his last opportunity to get the mvp (laughs) exactly poor crazy eight all right so that is then uh walter white one jesse pinkman one and crazy eight one yes so All far, right. no no repeats. We'll keep the far. MVP race going. Absolutely. All right, so the next episode is Cancer Man. That is episode four. We'll be back next week with that. In the meantime, if you are looking for podcast material, you can check out the rest of the shows on the Vernacular Podcast Network. Josh and his wife, Maureen, host the Popcast. If you haven't listened to that one already, do it. They come out every Friday, Pop Culture Podcast. Me and my wife host Vernacular. It is subtitled The Art of Being Human. We talk about a lot of different things, all of which have to do with the art of being human. And with that, I think we'll end it here. We look forward to talking to you next time on Breaking Pod. Check out episode four on Netflix so you're all ready to catch up with us on Cancer Man. All right, for Breaking Pod, I'm Zach. On the other line is Josh. Have a great week. <laughs>